Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. All of us kind of have the intuitive idea that when we go to the pump and fill up with petrol, some of the money that we're spending will go back to these terrible regimes that are causing so much trouble in their countries and fueling these aggressive ideologies around the world. But it's not only when we go to the pump, I'm afraid to say, almost everything we buy is wrapped up in oil somehow. So the food that we eat is grown with nitrogen that's extracted from oil. Anything that's plastic is made of oil. So your laptop, your phone, your glasses, our clothing, carpets, the paint on the walls, even things that aren't made from oil are transported with oil. So it's almost inevitable that whenever we go and check out in a store or online, we are going to be sending some money back to these uh, authoritarians and militias in these resource-cursed countries. We're wrapped up with oil in everything we do, and that's a real problem. Should we abolish the right to buy stolen oil, clean up world trade systems and our not-so-transparent oil-based global economy, and put an end to the oil curse? Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's great to have your company this evening. Well, on tonight's show, we're going to meet with two brave and inspirational writers. One a Scotswoman, the other an American. Writers of tremendous passion, insight, grit and humanity. Philosopher, writer and campaigner Leif Wenner unpacks the largest source of unaccountable power in our world today, oil, and explains how you and me can act together to create a more united human future around arguably one of our most valuable natural resources. And journalist and writer Amy Liptrop talks living on the edge, Orkney style, and her stunning memoir of addiction, The Outrun. This is a show about trust, transparency, island life and change. But first, can oil stop time? Ethics at King's College London and the founder and director of cleantrade.org, a non-partisan campaign to change the law that forces all of us to fund repression, conflict and extremism where we shop. In his new book, Blood Oil, Tyrants, Violence and the Rules that Run the World, Leif writes, Unless you walk to buy your food at an organic Amish farm, your shopping will be saturated with oil at every stage. Every time we go to the checkout, in a shop or online, we may be sending some of our cash to foreign strongmen. The complexities of global markets hide all of this from us. What we see around us are just the cornucopias of retail. If we happen to think of the victims of the authoritarians who are getting our cash, it's likely not with indifference, but more with a feeling of helplessness. What, after all, could we possibly do for them? Well, this week I had the very great pleasure of talking to Leif about the oil all around us and whether might makes right. I am Leif Winar. I'm the Chair of Philosophy and Law at King's College London. I'm now visiting at Stanford University in the same department where I was an undergraduate. I'm a philosopher by training. I was a political philosopher and I have spent the last 10 years working on oil and all of the terrible wicked things that go on around oil in our world and how we can make our world a little better when it comes to natural resources like oil. 
Leif, really well done in the book. It's a phenomenal read. It's a big book and very well merited. I might throw you a bit of a philosophical quote, if you wouldn't mind, to kick things off. And it's from the great Karl Marx. He said that philosophers have only interpreted the world in various ways. The point is, however, to change it. So what does philosophy have to say about oil and how we're doing things? You know, philosophy is nothing other than looking at the big picture. And you and listeners out there probably are philosophers in that sense, too. You want to see the big picture. And what you see when you look at the big picture of our world is just how much trouble oil has caused. So think about all the big threats and crises we've seen in our lifetimes. I mean, now... What do you see? You see ISIS with their atrocities and their beheadings and this terrible Syrian refugee crisis. And a little while ago, it was Putin going into Ukraine. And before that, it was Saddam and the Gulf Wars and Gaddafi and the Lockerbie bombings and Darfur and Iran with its sponsorship of terrorism. And if you're as old as I am, you even remember the Soviets, remember surging ahead of us in the nuclear arms race. All of those threats and crises that I just mentioned, they have one thing in common, and that's oil. They all come from countries that export a lot of oil. So in the big picture, oil is a huge amount of trouble in our world, and that's what this book is about. Would you describe the book as a manifesto on oil, or is that pushing it? Do you know, my own view is that we can be a lot more optimistic than we usually think about making big changes in our world. Our world is actually more frightening, but also more hopeful than we tend to think day to day. So it's more frightening because oil has not only caused us a lot of trouble in the past, it looks like it's going to be even more trouble in the future. Now you're right, oil has a remarkable property. It can stop time. I loved that. But one of the very obvious things in reading your book is that Oil can also empower very coercive authorities or leaders or fanatics to drive great inequalities in the world. It's so true. I mean, here's the philosophical big picture question. You know, it's the 21st century. Why do we still have absolute monarchs? This is not medieval times. Why are we threatened by these terrible ISIS, Al-Qaeda people who have this ideology from the 7th century. What's going on? Why is the world like this? A lot of it actually has to do with oil because of the way our world works. Whoever can keep control over oil wells will get to sell off that oil and keep the money. And that means whoever has the most coercive power, whoever has the most guns, essentially, will get a huge amount of money from consumers in the world. And they can use that money to launch their terrible campaigns of terror like ISIS and al-Qaeda. Or they can use the money, as the Saudis did, to spread their medieval ideology around the world, this very extreme version of Islam. They're imposing it not only in their own country, they've spread it around the world aggressively for the past 30 years. So part of the strange property of oil is it can stop time in the medieval period. And all of that violence inherent in those kinds of beliefs ultimately ends up spilling back onto us as well. Now, put simply, you're arguing that we need to stop buying, I suppose, natural resources and winning all of that oil from nasty regimes. How do we do that? And can you talk me through it? You know, Sue, it's, it's, this is one of the more hopeful things. It seems impossible. We've been buying oil from the Middle East for so long, and we've been dealing with those people for so long. It seems like just the way the world is. But 
the big picture message for everybody out there is we don't need to buy natural resources from those guys anymore. We don't need to be in business with them anymore. The West now has enough of its own energy that we could say that we're not going to buy oil and other resources from authoritarian regimes or failed states anymore. We can get ourselves out of business. I'm not saying it'll be easy. It won't happen tomorrow. But peacefully and responsibly and gradually, we can switch over to our own resources. And that'll make us not only more self-reliant, in the long term, it'll make us safer too. But Leif, we're living in a globalised world and within that supply chains are pretty complex and sometimes not the most transparent. So do you, how do you tackle that? Because governments are linked inadvertently in some ways to some of these horrific regimes which are doing untold damage around the world. It's true. Supply chains are complicated and we are involved in political ways with all of these regimes. But look, to make the change we need to make... We just need to change our own laws for our own people on our own soil. So Ireland could change its laws tomorrow and say we're no longer going to buy resources from anyone who couldn't possibly have the authorization of the people of the country to sell them off. The resources of each country belong to its people. So we're just not going to buy anymore from anyone who couldn't have the authority of their people. And that would mean we would have to stop buying oil from countries like Saudi Arabia and Algeria and a nasty little dictatorship down in West Africa called Equatorial Guinea. It's actually not the economics that are hard about this. It's not even the supply chains. We can do that if we want to. Technically, it's not difficult. As you can imagine, it's the politics that are difficult. It would be a big change in our world, something along the lines of the end of colonialism, for example. It's a big change in how we think of the world, but We can get on the right side of history if we make that change and no longer put ourselves in business with these terrible men of blood overseas. Now, some critics would argue that we're coming out of a recession, so we can't necessarily afford for rising oil prices. What do you say to that? And what moral imperatives do you throw back? You know, it's interesting. You know, oil prices have come down so far in the last two years that in order to get ourselves out of business with these authoritarians, we wouldn't need to put oil prices back up that much. It would take uh, some effort to get us out of business. We'd have to, for example, import more liquefied natural gas and get our pipelines in Europe to go both ways and sort of uh, engineering stuff we'd have to do. And it wouldn't be costless. But you have to put this all in the context of the costs of continuing to try to keep the Middle East together by other means. I mean, Look what tools we have to try to constrain the power of oil from outside in the West. We can try to, what, make an alliance with these authoritarian regimes. Well, how has that gone over the last 40 years? How did that go with the Shah of Iran or with Saddam or with Gaddafi or with the Saudis spreading this ideology around the world? How about, well, we can try military action. How has that gone? Gulf War One, Gulf War Two, Libya, cover the region with drones. Well, okay, then we can try sanctions, as we have Iran and Iraq and Libya, Sudan, Syria, Russia. How's that gone? The tools we have to try to control the power of oil from outside are very clumsy. They're often very brutal. They're extremely expensive, and they often just have terrible unintended consequences. So we end up paying for our policies right now in very big ways, switching our policies to say, look, we really are going to make a big change in who we buy oil and other natural resources from in the long run. That'll end up 
saving us money while it makes us safer too. So basically what you're arguing is that we need to maybe take a look at the big picture, take a deeper, broader view on oil. Is that it? Is that what you're saying? That's right. And what makes me so enthusiastic and optimistic that we can do this thing and get ourselves out of business with the men of blood abroad is that so many times in history, humanity has overcome the bad rule that we now use for buying natural resources. Our rule right now for resources of other countries is essentially might makes right. If someone can seize an oil field over there, we'll buy the oil from them. And that oil will be owned in our countries legally, might there makes right here. And that just seems the way the world works. But we've overcome that bad rule of might makes right so many times before. I mean, if you think about it, 300 years ago, might makes right was our rule for human beings. You know, whoever could see the human being abroad had the right to sell that human being across international borders. That was just the rule that made the slave trade legal. But we've abolished the slave trade. So might makes right used to make colonialism legal and it used to make apartheid legal. Again and again, you've seen that humanity has overcome this terrible old legitimation of violence and gone to more modern, decent, progressive rules. We can do it one more time for might makes right for natural resources. It's right ahead of us. We can make that next step forward. Leif, how do you explain countries like Botswana and Norway who have large deposits of oil, lots of different natural resources, but they're relatively stable. They have a fairly decent human rights track record and that they empower their citizens to take responsibility when it comes to their resources. How do you explain that as compared to some of the countries that you're profiling? I think you were looking at Nigeria, French Guiana and uh, some other countries. So how do you explain that? Because they are almost the outliers in the system, aren't they? It's true. And it's such an interesting question. And it leads to the answer, in fact. So people talk about the resource curse, which is what we've essentially been talking about all along. That, Well, here's one way of looking at it. Countries that have oil outside of the democratic world are no richer, no more free, and no more peaceful than they were even in 1980. And that's just remarkable because the developing world has made such progress in all these dimensions. But states with oil are resource cursed unless... Like you mentioned, they are democratic when they discover oil. If a country is democratic when it discovers oil, then the people can hold the government accountable. And when the government gets the oil money, well, then the people force the government to use the money for the public good. And that's just what we see in Norway. You know, they funded their pensions for decades in advance. Um, you know, 40 years from now, they'll still be benefiting from the oil money they're getting today because the government is accountable for the people and the government has to use the money for public goods. And it's the same with Botswana. Botswana, the government was accountable to the people when the diamond money came in. And that's why Botswana is the miracle of Africa instead of turning into one of these resource-cursed countries. Now, Leif, I'm going to throw you back some of your own words. You write, compared to the resource curse, even climate change looks easy. At least with climate change, the cause and the cure are easily understood. Not everyone would agree with you on that one. <laughs> yeah, so let me say first on climate that there is a common solution to the resource curse and the climate change problem, which is we should get off fossil fuels as quickly as we can. But what I meant in that passage is that at least with climate change, we can understand that the phenomenon is occurring because 
there's these tiny emissions at millions and millions of places around the world when we drive our cars and when the factories run and so on. So in a sense, there's just an addition, an addition, an addition of carbon molecules which are making the world heat up. And the solution would be to stop emitting so many carbon molecules. That's all I meant when the problem and the solution are easily understood. The reason that's easier than understanding the resource curse is because with the resource curse, nothing looks wrong. Right? We just buy everyday products like we always do, and we assume that when we buy something, it's going to benefit the people who sell it, and it's a mutually advantageous trade. And that's usually the way it is when we buy things. But in this case, when it comes to natural resources, that's where the resource curse sets in, and that's where this bad old law of might makes right puts us into business with these aggressive and oppressive men overseas. That's what sends our money as consumers to those who are attacking and repressing the people of other countries. And again, that violence always comes back and washes out onto us. I'm just wondering, could you come at it another way in terms of our dependence, our addiction to oil, whether it comes from Norway or some uh, nasty regime somewhere in the world? You cite that I think it's that 90% of world transportation systems come from oil or use oil. And you say the oil industry was worth two trillion in 2013. So if we're so dependent on oil, maybe we should look at reducing our dependency and then as such that would kick back into these regimes and how we're dealing with them. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I'm afraid to say the situation is even worse than people tend to think. I mean, all of us kind of have the intuitive idea that when we go to the pump and fill up with petrol, some of the money that we're spending will go back to these terrible regimes that are causing so much trouble in their countries and fueling these aggressive ideologies around the world. But it's not only when we go to the pump, I'm afraid to say, almost everything we buy is wrapped up in oil somehow. So the food that we eat is grown with nitrogen that's extracted from oil. Anything that's plastic is made of oil. So your laptop, your phone, your glasses, our clothing, carpets, the paint on the walls, even things that aren't made from oil are transported with oil. So it's almost inevitable that whenever we go and check out in a store or online, we are going to be sending some money back to these uh, authoritarians and militias in these resource-cursed countries. We're wrapped up with oil in everything we do, and that's a real problem. And I have to say you're absolutely right. The best thing we could do about the resource curse and about climate change is to reduce our dependence on fossil fuels as quickly as we can. And one way we could do that is to say, look, we realize we've got these two problems, a resource curse that bites us back in climate change, and we are just going to transition away from authoritarian oil by going to alternative energy sources while we stop buying oil from Saudi Arabia and Algeria and so on, we are going to replace that energy with more carbon-friendly, renewable sources of energy. That's a two-in-one win-win solution. Did you travel to Angola, Nigeria and Saudi Arabia and some of the other countries that you profiled? You know, actually, it was traveling to Nigeria in particular that got me interested in this project. 
I just went uh, with friends, and I saw a country full of such amazing people. I really admire Nigerians so much, and they're so energetic and entrepreneurial and proud, and their government is so entirely messed up. And I just wondered, as a political philosopher, how could it be that these people are continually afflicted with such a dreadful government, which not only does not provide public services very well, but often preys on the people that it should be serving? That's what got me interested in the resource curse. Now, Leif, I was quite surprised when I read what you wrote about certain countries that you visited. You said extracting natural resources does not curse a country any more than drinking or doing drugs. Can you talk me through that? (laughs) So think about alcohol. Studies show that for most people, actually, it's probably a little bit more healthy to have maybe a drink a day than either to have lots and lots of alcohol or to have none at all. Studies show that, you know, maybe a drink a day, red wine, is probably good for your health overall. And it's pretty much the same for natural resources. So think about Canada or Australia or even Britain. They get a little bit of their economic energy from natural resources, maybe 5%, 10% of GDP. That's like having a drink a day. And that's good for a country. It helps growth and helps the economy and so on. The real trouble comes if you look at countries that are the equivalent of the real boozers who get most, even almost all of their economic energy from natural resources. That's where you see these pathologies where the government gets a huge amount of money from selling off the oil or the metals and can keep that money to keep itself in power, totally unaccountable to the people and use the money to buy the strongmen that it needs and the weapons that it needs and the loyalty that it needs to stay in power regardless of the interests of the people. How do you think you're going to get the World Trade Organization to agree to some of the ideas that you propose in your book? I think you mentioned the Clean Hands Trust and developing cleaner, fairer trade systems. I'm just wondering how you go about that. If people are really interested in the details of the World uh, Trade Organization and how how my proposals would fit with it, there's a good paper on that written by a WTO expert on the website. It's called cleantrade.org. So if you're interested in the details, you can go to cleantrade.org. But in, in general, I can say, look, we can trade according to our own deepest principles. If we really believe that the resources of every country belong to the people of the country and shouldn't be sold off by whoever has the most guns, then we can say that it's against our deepest principles to buy this oil, which is essentially stolen from the people of the country. It's the World Trade Organization. It's not the World Circulation of Stolen Goods Organization. If we genuinely say our principle makes us believe that this oil is stolen oil, then the WTO, of course, couldn't make us buy stolen oil any more than it could make us buy, for example, slaves if these countries were selling slaves instead of stolen oil. So maybe we haven't read enough Kant, Leif. I know you you quote him extensively in the book and uh, one particular favourite of mine, all politics must bend its knee before right. So ultimately, are we as people and our politicians not engaging, not asking the right questions and not looking at the big picture and seeing how we can make a more fair, transparent world that we need to now look within ourselves? and recognize what needs to happen. It's true that we need to do the right thing. 
And, you know, in our hearts, we know what the right thing is. We shouldn't be in business with these guys overseas. In this case, the right thing to do is also the best thing to do. So I said that I'm both more scared and more optimistic about the world. I'm more scared about the world because we keep sending hundreds of billions of euros and dollars and pounds to places like the Middle East every year when we shop for our everyday goods. And that money is going to the men of violence. It's been 40 years of threats and crises. And because of climate change, that arc of oil that goes from the Middle East into Africa is just going to get hotter and drier and hungrier and thirstier at the same time as it's getting more crowded. And actually, it's going through a youth bulge. So it looks like the region where we're getting our energy is going to become more and more unstable and more extremism and more of these problems that we see more and more every day. If we keep sending our money to whoever is the most coercive, we're just going to make that problem worse. As a philosopher, what does our current inaction today tell you about humanity and where we're going and how we're evolving? It's so interesting. I just wrote an article for the New York Times about how our problems are changing from the old problems, which were basically problems of ignorance, to new problems, which are problems of invention. So in the old days, you know, we didn't know how diseases work. So when the plague came, it, you know, killed off maybe a third of our population. We just didn't know what it was causing it, and we didn't know what to do about it. Now we understand the world so much better, and our problems are coming because our inventions are actually so terrific. So, you know, think about climate change. It really is a crisis of our own invention. There's all these machines that are putting out all this smoke that's, you know, causing the atmosphere to become more like a, a greenhouse, and that's heating up the planet. Or think about the resource curse. One reason we're getting this extremism coming from these regions is because we're so effective in getting this energy out of the ground and buying it. The systems are so good these days that we're threatened by the sophistication of the global systems of trade and economic activity. So our new problems are a lot harder than the old problems because the the bads that we see are wrapped up in the goods that we need. But I have real confidence that humanity can solve these problems. Irrespective of whether it's managed fairly or not, could you see a world without oil? Do you think that's possible or do you think sure. that's crazy? No, it's, it's not crazy at all. I mean, you know, they say that the, the Stone Age did not end because of a shortage of stones. The Oil Age is not going to end because of a shortage of oil. It's going to end because we find a better source of fuel. It just so happens that this nasty smelling mud underground is the best engineering solution we have right now for powering our cars and our lorries and our trains and our planes. But that's temporary. We are working very hard on getting better energy sources. And the minute someone comes up with a better energy source, especially for transportation, that really is more efficient than oil. We're going to switch to that, and that will be a better world. Our children's children will look back on us and wonder how it is that we tolerated a system where we powered ourselves with these tiny sparks coming off of this awful smelling mud. It's going to look very primitive to them, like horse and cart looks to us. You could argue, though, Leif, that a lot of the different minerals, elements that are in our mobile phones, TVs, on planes, whatever it is, are also coming from corrupt regimes. So it's not all about oil. 
That's very true. And I've been focusing on oil because it's the big resource in the world. It's the most valuable traded commodity internationally. But it's, you're absolutely right. Metals and gems cause big problems. And for the same reason, I'm afraid, it's because in the Congo, say, when some awful militia uh, extracts some metal at gunpoint and sends it through the world's supply chains, well, that metal 